If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. After an extended introduction to his sermon, which is written in the form of a letter that we call the book of James, which is written to Jewish believers who knew the Old Testament and the teachings of Jesus, James now dives in with the three main points of his sermon, which he presents, by the way, at the end of chapter 1. So if you look at the end of chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, if anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. Religion that that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The three points of his sermon are caring for those in need, chapter 2, controlling your tongue, chapter 3, up to verse number 12, and then finally living a holy life, which is the end of chapter 3, chapter 4, and the beginning of chapter 5. But you may notice that this is not the order in which he gave them to us in verses 26 and 27. He began with a controlled tongue, then caring for others, and then personal holiness. But he sort of switches the order around, and we might wonder why, why did he do this? I think perhaps the question we need to ask first is why these three things? Of all the things that James could have written about to the believers who have left Jerusalem because of persecution, they're now scattered among the nations. He chooses to write about controlling your tongue, caring for others, and living a holy life. I think that James does this because it is what we find in God our Father. And it is demonstrated time and time again in the life of Jesus. Jesus came to us to reveal the Father. And he did this in part by the way he lived his life. And then Jesus called us to be like our Heavenly Father. And what is our Heavenly Father like? Like Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of the Father. So when we look at the three features, the three main points of James's sermon, we might ask ourselves, did Jesus live up to this? What did Jesus do? Did he control his tongue? Did he care for those in need? Did he keep himself from being polluted by the world? And we would say yes to all three of these questions. And we would acknowledge that we are to follow his example. The order that James follows is not based on verses 26 and 27, but actually on verse number 18. So if you look at verse number 18 in chapter 1, Speaking of God the Father, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So he cares for the helpless. He chose to give us birth. It wasn't up to the helpless. It was up to the Father. His word is truth. That is, it is controlled. It speaks truly. And thirdly, his purpose is holiness, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. It's very specific in the Old Testament about first fruits, but the one thing I would mention is that the first fruits were holy. They were set apart to God. As the expression goes, like father, like son, we would say we are children of the Heavenly Father and we are to be like him. 
one who is marked by his care for those in need, by truth, and by a desire for holiness. Last week we came to chapter 2, and here begins the sermon proper. It's about caring for those in need, but it probably is not what we would expect. Look, if you would, at the first four verses. My brothers, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? James begins with a simple illustration. But it's not actually about caring for those in need, is it? And so it, it sort of throws us. He tells, he gives an example which would illustrate what it means to practice religion that is pure and faultless. Two men come into the congregation. By the way, the word that he uses here is the verbal form of synagogue. So it is a gathering. There weren't church buildings, so people met in people's homes. So the church has gathered in someone's home and someone comes in. I don't know that he's a stranger. It might, in fact, be a member of the congregation. But he is quite well-to-do. He has a gold ring. He has fine clothes. And then somebody else comes in. And this person is poor and in shabby clothing. I would insist that they're both believers and probably both members of the congregation. They didn't have church buildings that people could come into. They had to know where to meet. So here come these two brothers into the congregation. By the way, the man in shabby clothing, the word in Greek is literally a beggar. Someone on the street, a beggar. The wealthy man is saying, here, we've got a nice seat for you. Here, please sit here. Whereas the poor believer is given a choice. By the way, the rich man is not. He's told this is a good seat. The poor man is told, you can stand over there or you can sit on the floor by my feet. What is the difference between the, between the two men? Well, there are probably a lot of differences. Um, but the one that causes two different responses is the external appearance. One looks important. The other one looks rather inconsequential. And the seating of the two shows favoritism. It shows partiality. So what's, what's wrong with treating people differently? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like it's the right thing to do. But to start out your sermon, the first point of your three-point sermon, um, to talk about how you treat people in this regard, seems like majoring on a minor point. You think? Let's keep reading. Look, if you would, at verse number five. Listen, my dear brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? In these verses, James gives us at least three reasons why we are not to do this. 
The first reason is because of the example of Jesus, and this is in verse number one, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, who is the glory of the Father, who left the glory of heaven, who left that behind, came to earth, and in fact did not show partiality. If you look at the Gospels, you see that Jesus is not concerned about one's economic status, not concerned about their gender, their health, dealt with lepers, their social standing, or their reputation. He hung out with sinners, tax collectors, and prostitutes. Um, He who is the glory of God, though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor. If we go in a different direction, then we set ourselves up as judges and we pass judgment on others based on wrong thinking. We've committed a double fault, actually. We have misunderstood our status as if it was our position to judge others. And we have trusted our own judgment that if on our own, we will make the right judgment. It is worth noting that the word discriminate that we find in these verses is translated as a doubt in Mark chapter 11. I tell you the truth, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, does not discriminate, but believes that what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Which takes us back to chapter one of James, verse number six. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. As we saw, to doubt is to be in two minds, is to believe and not believe at the same time. James calls it being double-minded. Well, a person who discriminates, who shows favoritism of partiality, is also a double-minded person. Because he or she sees this person as someone who is made in the image of God, but treats that person as something less. And this is true not only of the shabby person, the person in shabby clothing, the beggar, because we would say, yes, you've definitely judged. It's also true of how they treat the rich person. I remember hearing years ago that someone said that one of the downsides to being a millionaire is that people don't really think of you as a person. They think of you as a a millionaire. That's, That's how they view you. And so, in fact, you are judging when we know that that person is made in the image of God. So we're in two minds. Yes, they're made in the image of God, but we're making a judgment about how we should treat them. The second thing that James tells us is that as God constructs his kingdom, he chooses things that we probably would not choose. His choices run contrary to the way that we view people. Verse number five. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Those who are poor are born into this world. They're not born into wealth, but perhaps into poverty, but they are adopted into wealth to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom. We come to new life through the new birth We are adopted by God as his children, and therefore we become heirs 
and someone might look at us and say, oh, you are poor, and the reality is quite different. Then the third thing he points out, and this is, gets a little tricky, um, the oppressive nature of those who are wealthy. Um, I don't think, by the way, that James is making an absolute statement that all rich people are terrible, they abuse Christians, they're not to be trusted, you know, they exploit, says, isn't not the rich who exploit you? They manipulate the legal system. They've got good lawyers so they can get off scot-free. And they defame, they slander the name of Christ and of his followers. Um, is he talking about unbelievers? I don't think so. I think he's actually talking about rich Christians. If you think about it, when persecution came to Jerusalem, a lot of people left and they scattered. Well, to leave Jerusalem and to go across the Mediterranean, wherever it was, you had to have money. Not all of them did have money, but a lot of them did. So it is tempting to think that, yes, it's those terrible unbelievers, those terrible Gentiles who are exploiting believers. They're manipulating the legal system against believers. And they are slandering the name of Christ and believers. I'm convinced it is, in fact, rich Christians who are doing this. We should not imagine that. Yeah, we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and that's what James is talking about. Uh, I don't think so. And I think as we go further along in the book of James, we will find, particularly in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, um, that his criticism of those who are wealthy, I, I don't think is directed to unbelievers. It's directed to believers. Paul, uh, more than a decade later, will deal with a similar situation in Corinth. And he writes about this in 1 Corinthians 6. Uh, listen, if you would, as I read this. If any of you has a dispute with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints. In other words, he goes to court. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, appoint as judges even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there's nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute among believers? Instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this in front of unbelievers. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. Oh. I think James is dealing with a very similar situation. That those who are wealthy, in fact, among the church, are not treating those who are not wealthy the way that they should. They exploit them, and we'll see that in chapter 5. Uh, they manipulate the legal system, and in the process, they slander the name of Christ. But James continues, look if you would at verse number 8. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. 
and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The first thing that might jump out at you is in verse number nine. You know, we might have thought that, you know, up to verse seven, that James was trying to discourage people from showing favoritism. It's not a nice thing. You should be nice. You know, you shouldn't show favoritism. Uh, Here in verse number nine, he's very clear. You do that, you sin. Okay? You discriminate, you're sinning. Um, Yeah. But this isn't the first thing in the passage, is it? I skipped ahead to verse number nine. The first thing is keep the royal law. It is worth noting, if you back up a bit, the word used in verse number one for showing favoritism is plural. You show favoritism to persons, okay, in any shape or form. But here, it is one example. It is of showing partiality toward one person. I said this last week, I've said it before. The church is where we learn to practice living out the truth of the gospel. This is, in fact, the pilot project. And if we discriminate in the church, if we show favoritism in the church, what do you think is going to happen when we go out there? We will show favoritism as well. We will discriminate as well. And sadly, the church has failed, I think, miserably in this regard because we didn't learn in the church. If we have partiality, if we have cliques, if there are people we hang out with and others we don't want to talk to, then we are not prepared at all to live out the gospel in the world. The shift here is from brother to neighbor. If you show partiality among your brothers and sisters, what about your neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself. Again, if I can't love my brothers and sisters, how am I going to love my neighbor? If I can't love those who are brothers and sisters, how can I love someone who is outside the church? Who is my neighbor? Well, we could repeat the parable of the Good Samaritan, but in the context here of James chapter 2, it is someone who needs my care and my attention. Meaning that it would be just as sinful to refuse neighborly concern to the rich. When you think, well, they're rich, they don't need me, they don't need anything from me, I don't have to show them any concern. As it would be to not show concern to those who are poor, simply because they are poor. How are we to treat people? We are to obey the royal law. This is where people get into trouble. Martin Luther didn't care for the book of James. This is part of it here because James kept talking about the law. What is the place of the law for the Christian? He talks about the royal law. After all, didn't Paul some years later say, you are not under law, but under grace? Um, By the way, people quote that verse. That's actually part of the verse. They don't quote the part before that. 
for sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. We need to ask ourselves, this is something we've discussed at length here, when was the law given by God and why was it given by God? The first chapters, the first 20 chapters of Exodus tell the story. The beginning of the story, the Israelites are slaves. They have been for four centuries. And then God, in a miraculous way, delivers them. Delivers them out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and then he brings them to Sinai. And there he gives them the law. He redeems them, he rescues them, and then he gives them the law. That is to say, grace comes first. And I love the quote that Lonnie read to us. Um, Grace comes first. It invades. And then comes law. It tells us how we are supposed to live. In the story of Exodus, first came the blood of the Passover lamb, and then came the call to obey God's law. Redemption, and then response. This illustrates some important truths. First of all, we obey because we have been redeemed, not so that we can be redeemed. It isn't as though Moses gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites when they were slaves. It was after they had been liberated that it was given to them. Another thing, I would say, those who do not wish to obey the law, God's commandments, um, should not, in fact, desire redemption. Because redemption comes first and then, then the law. Then, then you obey God. But if you don't want to obey God, then you actually probably don't want to be redeemed. Um, I think people would prefer redemption without response, grace without law, the exodus without Sinai. Let's just go straight to the promised land. In the past, there have been great debates over what's called the lordship issue, in which some people say, you can accept Jesus as your savior, that's Exodus, but not as your Lord, that's Sinai. And I think James would say that's not the case. Because in verses 8 and 9, he speaks of the royal law. Look, if you would, again, verses 8 and 9. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbors yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. If we believe that James was not careless about his words, um, then there's a very specific reason why he used the word royal. But I think it goes past us, um, primarily because we don't do Greek. You don't have to do Greek if you just think a bit. In verse number five, he talked about the kingdom. Well, in a kingdom, you have king. He is royalty. He gives the law. Verse five, listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom? He promised those who love him. Royal points to something that belongs to the king. And the kingdom is where the king reigns. The royal law is kingdom law. And this is something that we should obey. We are now citizens of God's kingdom. We are to obey his law. And the law is this, love your neighbor as yourself. 
the question I haven't heard many people address is, how do I love myself? I think it's important because I have to know how it is, in fact, that I love myself so that I can love my neighbors myself. In our culture, the desire to love oneself is the greatest love of all, we're told. Um, there's also this fear of narcissism, which runs rampant in our culture. How are we to love ourselves? Well, hopefully it's not just an emotional thrill. I love myself, you know, type of deal. Rarely is it with much a sense of satisfaction. I'm really satisfied with myself. Oftentimes it is with disapproval. I'm not really happy with myself. Sometimes with complete loathing and despair. But always, I would say always, it is with concern, it is with care, and it is with attention. And so loving ourselves means providing loving care and attention first to ourselves, but then we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Anyone who needs our care, anyone who needs our attention. Now, James tells us in verse number nine that the opposite of kingdom law is partiality. So if you obey the kingdom law, you're doing what is right. If you show partiality, you are committing sin. Whenever there is a need, we are to show obligation, we are to show concern, care, and attention. That is our obligation. That is the royal law. If we are selective, yeah, I think I will love this neighbor as I love myself, but not this neighbor, then in fact, we have shown partiality. There is a problem though, and that is that the world is filled with needy people. And we have far more neighbors than we could ever hope to care for. What is one to do? I would suggest several things to consider, not an exhaustive list by any means. First of all, we need to think about what care and concern mean. It's not always exclusively material things. Sometimes it means simply being there with them. We saw this when we went through the book of Job, when his friends sat with him for seven days and seven nights in what we call the sacrament of silence. They just sat there with him in silence. And sometimes that's what our neighbors need, just for us to be present with them. Also, we need to know who we are. That is our limitations. We're finite. Our resources are finite. Um, in 2 Corinthians 8, when Paul talks about giving to those in need, by the way, in Jerusalem, he says, according to what one has, not what one does not have. If you don't have something, you can't give it. So understand your limitations. God has given you X amount or whatever. It's limited. Recognize that as you seek to care for those around you. And then recognize where you are. If we accept that God has put us where we are, then he has arranged the opportunities 
someone else might not have. It's found in Deuteronomy, and Jesus quotes it, the poor you have with us always, or you have with you always. Um, there will always be opportunities to help those in need. God brings people into our lives who have needs, and we need to recognize that. But then we also need the gift of wisdom to know what is the right thing to do, who to help, when to help, and how to help. I found it fascinating that in Matthew 25, after the final parable that Jesus tells in his earthly ministry, the parable of the sheep and the goats, do you remember that? For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. The very next story in Matthew 26 is of the woman who, who poured, I want to say spilled, but poured expensive perfume on the head of Jesus. Mark tells us it was a year's wages worth. That's how much it cost. And the disciples who had just heard the parable are like, this is wrong. What a waste. You could have fed the hungry. You could have clothed the naked. You could have cared for the sick. And Jesus responds, she has done a beautiful thing. The poor you have with you always, meaning that there are always those in need. We need to look to God for wisdom to know who to help and when to help and how much to help. We've seen this already, but in everything we do in our lives, we need God's wisdom. How we are to respond specifically to those that God brings across our path. Yeah. But we are to care. And let's not forget that. And then in verses 10 and 11, he speaks of the whole law. And this you may be familiar with. For whoever keeps the whole law, yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Let's face it, sometimes it's easier to help person A than it is person B. Sometimes it's easier to care for those in need than it is for others. But kingdom law says that we are to show concern for those in need. I don't know that I've ever had someone say this directly, but the implication was there is that I love the Lord, it's just people I can't stand. James wants his readers, that includes us, to know an all important truth that the command to love your neighbor as yourself is not only kingdom law, it is part of a whole. And if you break one part, in a sense, you've broken the whole thing. To break one point is to break the whole law. And I think that some people sort of get hung up on the adultery murder thing. You know, if you don't commit adultery, but you commit murder, I would never do that. But he's talking about loving your neighbor. And if you don't love your neighbor as yourself, then yeah, that you've broken the whole law. By the way, we, we went through the Ten Commandments uh, earlier this year. Um, how did the Ten Commandments begin? Do you remember? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. 
The Israelites were at Mount Sinai, and Moses reminds them, you didn't see a form, you only heard a voice, the voice of God and his commandments. God is the law giver. It's nothing arbitrary, nothing mean. God isn't a sadist. Somehow he wants to make us miserable. He made us. He knows what is best for us. And he has given us his law. But then verse number 12, James revisits something he said in chapter 1. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. We saw this in chapter 1. It's like, Law gives freedom. I mean, for us, those are like antonyms. Those are opposites. The law tells me what to do, what not to do. Freedom, I can do whatever I want. James has given us two reasons why to love our neighbors. It's kingdom law. It's God's law. There's a third reason now here in verse number 12. It is a part of the law that gives freedom. We can, by God's grace, obey it. We've already heard James speak of the law that gives freedom, an expression that has created problems for a lot of people. Um, But remember, the law was given to people who had just been slaves for four centuries, generation after generation. Now they're free. How is a free person supposed to act? You know, my parents can't tell me because they don't know, and my grandparents can't tell me. They don't know, and you could go on as many relatives as far back as you can. They don't know how I'm supposed to act as a free person. But the one who redeemed me, the one who created me, he knows precisely how I'm supposed to act as a free person. And so it is the law, in fact, that gives freedom. It makes me free to be the person I'm supposed to be. I'm not a slave anymore, but I can't be a jerk. I can't be a hedonist. I can't do whatever I want. There's a particular way I'm supposed to live. You see, the law not only tells us who God is, it tells us who we are and who we are supposed to be. By the way, if the law represents God's character and we are made in God's image, then it's a natural fit. What is said about God would be true of us. This is how we are supposed to live. But then we come, I think, perhaps in this section, the most important verse, verse number 13. Because judgment without mercy will, show, will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The reality is we fail over and over and over again to live lives of obedience. And we have no one to blame but ourselves. We are in constant need of God's grace and God's mercy. And so the question is, in our dealings with others, will we be judges with evil thoughts, verse four? Will we issue judgment without mercy, verse number 13? Or will we forgive and show mercy as we ourselves have been forgiven and shown mercy? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We are not forgiven because we forgive. We forgive because we have been forgiven. And we are to show mercy because mercy has been shown to us. And mercy wins out. Mercy triumphs over judgment. 
I think in this verse, James seeks to comfort his readers and hopefully us because we might despair and say, Damon, I don't love my neighbor as myself. I show partiality. I show favoritism. I break God's law. And not just one, which means I've broken the whole thing, but so many parts of it. What am I to do? We are to rest in God's mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, some of you may be wondering, I thought the sermon was going to be about faith. It's right here in the order of service. It says faith. Um, Let's talk about that briefly. I mentioned last Sunday that faith or belief is the noun form of the word believe. And it's worth noting, and it's not just a a trivia, that in Greek the two words are very closely related. So pistis is, in fact, faith, and pistuin is to believe. But when we come to the Romance languages, like Latin, the noun for form of faith is fides, and the verb form is credere, not even close. And you come to Spanish, fe is the noun, and creer is the verb. It's come into English as well, so that we now have two different words, faith and believe. Um, And it's almost as though we think that what one believes is not necessarily connected to what one holds to be true. The word faith appears 12 times in the book of James twice in chapter 1, once in chapter 5, two times in verses 1 through 5. But the Lord willing, we will come to verse 14 next week, and then we find it seven times. It's the chapter that deals with caring for those in need. In chapter 2, James tells us what we should not do. We should not show partiality. What we should do, we should obey the royal law. And again, Lord willing, next week we will see the evidence that we are doing what we should be doing. And it is in this final section that Paul, or that James deals with the issue of faith. And you will notice that doing is the focus. What we should not do, what we should do, and evidence that we are doing what we should do. You see, faith means doing. Perhaps we'll touch on this next Sunday, but I think when people view faith versus reason, you know, the modern conflict, what they have done is they have reduced faith to a mental ascent, a mental or intellectual activity. It's sort of similar to the nature versus nurture debate. Is a person the result of nature, genetic code, or are they the result of their environment, of nurture? That is, are they a product of nature or a product of the environment? In either case, you're saying they're a product. So you're in the same arena. I think in the same way, when you talk about faith and reason as intellectual activities, you've put them in the same arena, and they don't belong there. Faith isn't simply something that you think something that you have in your heart that you believe. It is something that you do. Lord willing, we will look at this next week. 
The Old Testament is filled with stories how Israel struggled with a lack of trust and faith and obedience. Gia read to us from Daniel 9, where Daniel prays and says, we and our fathers have sinned. I think James' readers struggled as well, as do we. And again, I think part of the problem is we have reduced being a Christian, believing to merely a verbal confession an intellectual ascent. The heart of Judaism is the Shema, which is found in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This seems to be a confession of faith. This is what we believe. But that's not the end. The next statement is, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. We will see next week, James says in verse number 19, you believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Faith is much more than belief. One more thing, lest I forget, and it probably will be between now and next Sunday. You will notice that James writes about faith as it is directed toward others, caring for those in need. I suspect that many of us have a much more self-directed notion of faith, that I believe that God will do this for me. I want to have enough faith so God will do this for me. And James is talking about faith, we'll see next week, and it's all about others, doing for others, that this is what the Christian faith is about. And he'll come to the end in verse number 26, Faith without works is dead. It's kind of troubling. But how do you define faith? Is it, well, it's up here or it's in my heart. I believe God. I trust God. And that's part of it. But the evidence is that you do for others. It isn't all about you. Sorry, I hate to burst your bubble. Um, We're to care for those in need. We're to care for those in need. never done this before, but I'll tell you about a dream I had this week. Um, And you know how dreams are, they're not sequential, they don't always go along as you'd like. But in this dream, apparently I was preaching at the cathedral downtown. That's kind of weird. And I, I don't remember, you know, I got to the end of the sermon and I was in the pulpit and I noticed there was sort of I wouldn't say animosity, but, you know, people are looking at me weird. And so I said to them, you're probably asking yourselves, what gives you the right to say these things to us? And my response was, I'm a broken man. I'm in need of redemption, as are you. And that's why I'm here today. I would say the same thing to you today. I am a broken man. I am a sinner in need of God's grace. But praise God, mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together.
our Father, how broken we are that we imagine we can fix ourselves, that we can work the system, we can twist you around our little finger to get you to do what we want, that we redefine our faith in terms of ourselves and what we can get out of it rather than caring for those in need. It is here among your people that we are to learn and practice obedience, that we are to learn not to show partiality or favoritism, that we are to love each other as we love ourselves. And then by your grace, when we leave this place, we can put that into practice. We can love our neighbors as ourselves. I thank you that though we fail time after time after time, to the point that it almost leads to despair, we remember the words of James, that mercy triumphs over judgment, and that you are our merciful Father. We sang in our first hymn today of your tender mercies, how firm to the end. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for bringing us together today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.